Welcome to the Christian Optimist. My name is Rafe Chenry. I am your host, and I am so glad that you are with me today here at the Christian Optimist. My aim is to equip you as a Christian to handle your Bible well. I want to get into the Bible. I want to know what it says. And then I want you to be able to look out over the culture that you're living in and interpret the news and interpret the events and interpret all the cultural ideas that are being bombarded at you on a daily basis through the lens of Scripture and to be able to do that confidently and wisely taking into consideration the entire counsel of God. I do that all from an uh, eschatologically optimistic worldview, which means that I do believe that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, has been established. It is growing. He is ruling and reigning right now. And your work that you do through the local church, your kingdom building, actually is going somewhere. We're seeing the kingdom expand and grow throughout history until that great day when Christ returns. So that's the aim of the show. Today I got a good one for you, and it's a sensitive one. I want to jump right into a controversy. A little background on this controversy. Uh, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and the question of whether or not churches should open. And particularly, I'm going to be looking at Pastor James Coates up in Canada and a number of the situations surrounding what he's been going through. I'm going to be using that case study as an opportunity for me to jump into a bit more of a fuller study of Romans 13 and what our relationship as Christians is to the local government. Okay, so that's the aim of the show. By the by, the time this show's done, if I've done my job, you will not, you'll know, you'll actually know less about James Coates. <laughs> you'll, you'll know plenty about James Coates and the situation going on up there, but you'll know much more about Romans 13 and the historic biblical understanding of Christians' relationship to the government, which I think in our day and age is very, very deficient in general. I think most Christians have an incredibly deficient understanding of their relationship to the government. So with that, let me jump into the news story that we're talking about today, and that is the story of Pastor James Coates. Now, you may not have heard of this story, but it made quite a bit of headlines recently. He's a pastor up in Alberta. And Pastor James Coates has been holding church services during this pandemic, as I have been holding church services during this pandemic in Chicago. Now, I say that, and I'll get to the uh, precautions we've put in place, and we've rented a larger facility, and all that kind of stuff that we've done to do it in a safe way. However, me, like him, he's been holding church services. Now, up in Alberta, he was told that he was not allowed to hold church services at over 15% capacity at a time. And Pastor James Coates uh, refused to abide by that. He said that that was unfairly treating the church differently from other facilities and other places in uh, Alberta. And he continued to defy the local governing authorities. Now, I want you to understand, Pastor James Coates and his elders had lots of precautions in place. So before you throw James Coates fully under the bus, make sure you understand. And in my opinion, he was operating much like we have been operating. Maybe a little bit different, but he's been operating, frankly, kind of similar to Park South Loop, where I'm the pastor. He has been holding services. He's recommended anyone who has any symptoms whatsoever to stay home, which is in alignment with what we're finding out, that if you're asymptomatic or don't have symptoms that you can't really give it to anybody else, at least it's highly unlikely for you to. That's the data that we've seen. I think they've been taking temperatures. Uh, there's sections in the area where there's plexiglass that is put up. Uh, a number of their seniors, those who are most at risk, have been staying home and not coming to the services. All the types of things that most pastors who have opened their churches up and 
have been having services. He's been doing this very safely, covered in a lot of prayer, and doing it uh, with a lot of wisdom. Now, the governing authorities told him to stop. He did not stop, and they ended up putting him in prison. Uh, So he was in prison for the first two weeks. He was basically in solitary confinement as he was quarantined. He had two 15-minute blocks a day where he was allowed out, where he would either take a shower or he'd make a quick 15-minute phone call. But this young pastor was put in prison. Um, If you've been watching the news, his wife, others from his church have been making the rounds on news. I know his wife was on Tucker Carlson not too long ago just talking about how he's doing. But it's brought up a big question. Um, and I'll, I'll, actually, let me finish the story first. He was finally released from, or before he was released from prison, the governing authorities in Alberta said, look, we will release you from prison. Just tell us that you will not hold services anymore. And mustering all the courage he could, he looked at them and said, and keep in mind, he's got a family, he's got kids, young man, just like me. He's up in prison in Canada. He looks at them and says, I cannot abide by that rule. If you let me out, I will continue to hold church services. And so they kept him in prison. He was finally released over this last Easter weekend. He held two services. And you can imagine, you know, once a pastor makes headlines like that, people people find out about his church, and, and those who want to be going to a church service will go to his church. And so he had two Easter, service, uh, two Easter services over this last weekend, and they were quite full. And so in the last few days, the Alberta government has come around and they have fenced off his entire property with multiple layers of fencing. You can't get in to the building. You cannot get into the parking lot. Uh, They have essentially, uh, what I would say, tyrannically blocked off his facility. Okay, that's the story. But really, that really is just a headway for us to get into some confusion that I want to try to lay some groundwork for. The first thing that I just want to, by way of making a transition, is a number of the comments I've seen and people I've talked to, often what they'll say is, well, this guy is just completely out of his mind and he is being not loving at all. If he were a true Christian pastor, he would want to love his neighbors, he'd keep his church shut, and he would obey the governing authorities. After all, doesn't Romans 13.1 say, uh, let me read it to you specifically, Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I mean, isn't it a no-brainer? We just keep it shut so long as they keep it shut. And so many people who don't have a full biblical understanding of the Christian's relationship to the government, what they've done is said, they've they've isolated Romans 13.1, and then they basically assume that the right thing for all churches everywhere to do is to shut down if that's the ideas of the local government. The problem with that is that that is not taking into account the fullness of the counsel of God. The fullness of the counsel of God is not just that we blindly obey everything the government tells us to do. That would be irrational and crazy. Because if you look over history, there have been terribly tyrannical governments that have told their people to do evil, evil things. And Christians, when told to do evil things, would need to go against what the government's saying. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 4. If you remember Acts chapter 4, Peter is thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. The, the, the leaders of the governmental authorities around him, they tell him, hey, look, stop preaching the name of Jesus and we'll let you go. But Peter and John answered him, Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Now, 
What do we see in Acts chapter 4? The governing authorities are telling them what to do. But what the governing authorities are telling them to do goes against the free conscience of Peter and John and the apostles. And their conscience, we've talked about this studying Romans chapter 14, the Christian conscience is shaped by the word of God. If anybody, whether it be a governing authority, someone on the street, a family member, if they instruct you to do something that goes against your Christian conscience, which finds its standard in the word of God, then you do not listen to that person, no matter who they are, and you obey God. You see that? Our, our standard for right and wrong and what we are to do is the fullness of God's counsel. At this point, all I'm saying is anybody who looks at James Coates and says, hey, look, James, you should just listen to Romans 13.1, shut the service down, is not taking into account the fullness of Scripture. It's complex. It's not easy. It's not as simple as just saying, here's the verse, therefore do it. There's many verses which speak into the situation that we're in, okay? So with that, let me give you just a little understanding of where I'm at as a pastor and what we're doing here in Chicago. And then I want to give you a, a bit more of a robust understanding of Romans 13.1 so we can rightly understand what Christians are supposed to do with government. What is our relationship to government? Here in Chicago, um, we have, uh, by God's grace, not, not been put in a situation where we need to defy the governing authorities. Uh, the governing authorities to churches early, early on asked us to stay closed. Uh, there was a lawsuit that happened early, early on from one of the churches in Chicago in which that church won. And basically that removed any legal authority that the government had over churches to dictate how many people or how we could meet. The government put out a number of recommendations and they have still put out recommendations, but those are not legally binding in any way. So any church in Chicago that has chosen to uh, submit to the recommendations of the government, uh, that is purely just their voluntary submission. I'm just talking about from a legal standpoint here. It's their voluntary submission to willingly submit to those. Any local church that's chosen to open beyond the capacity numbers or in a way different from what the government is recommending, uh, that was in no way, shape, or form denying or rejecting the government authority because the government had no authority legally to say these things. So they weren't breaking any laws, breaking any rules. Essentially what I'm saying is, no church in Chicago, after that initial lawsuit that took place early on in the COVID-19 situation, no church has been put in a situation like Pastor James Coates of Canada. They, they were, no church has been put in a situation where they're, they're going to be faced with jail time because they're breaking some kind of legal barrier by meeting. So it's a very different situation, although I would say there's some similarities. The, the local governments here in Chicago have been making recommendations that I think are incorrect at times in Illinois. There you had uh, casinos that were open at, I think, 25% or 50%, while you had churches that were being asked to be open at something like 10% or, you know, a maximum of 15 people, which is just outrageous and out of this world. That was early on. We've moved past that moment. But there were these incredible hypocrisies that were taking place in what the government was requesting of churches. And so we've moved through those things. But long story short, the legal requirements were not being put on churches in Chicago the way they were in Alberta. So a different situation, but one that bears just consideration. And that's just a little bit of the background on us and how we came to the decisions we did. Okay, all of that is background. What is the relationship of Christians and, and churches to the state? 
Okay, this is very important. And I want to lay down three principles right out of Romans chapter 13. Obviously, this is complex. These three principles do not capture everything there is to know on this. I preached an entire sermon on Romans 13 uh, earlier this summer. I do recommend you go back and listen to that. Perhaps I'll post some clips of that this week so you could follow along with it. But three principles from that sermon that I want to bring to bear here today as we think about the situation with James Coates. First principle. All government is under God's authority and is ultimately held accountable to God. Okay, hear that. All government is under God's authority and is ultimately held accountable to God. So, let's read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this point that I'm making right now, remember the point. The point is this. Government is under God's authority and ultimately held accountable to God. When you look out over the current globe and you think about all the governments, every government leader and what's happening globally. I mean, I'm talking, you go to, you can go from Southeast Asia up through Russia, through Germany, through South America, through Africa, through America. You go, you go everywhere. All authority has been put in place by God. That includes all the governments that you and I know of and the ones that we don't know of. There is no governmental leader according to the scriptures, who is in authority or who wields governmental authority on this earth whom God has not placed there. No election can thwart the will of God. This is so important for you to realize. Ready? Hear it very clearly. No election can thwart the will of God. So it's not like God's got an ideal and then we make these, we have these, you know, democratic elections in America and then the person whom God has not ordained to be in the position of power for that period of time is the one who's, who's there. Whoever God desires, whatever God has willed and planned, that's what comes to pass. By the same token, no coup, no war can thwart the will of God. The language we see in this passage is that all authorities have been appointed by God. And we're told not to resist the authorities. Now, there's a great illustration that Abraham Kuyper, who I'll bring him up a handful of times. Abraham Kuyper is just a wonderful, wonderful theologian from generations past, Uh, who was in his own parliament. He was a a statesman, and he wrote a lot about the Christian relationship to the government and what the ideal situation is biblically. But one of the illustrations he used was of a young tree. If you think of like one of those very, very small plants, and when plants are very small, often what you'll do is you'll put like a stake in the ground, a pretty tall, stable stake, and you'll tie that little sapling tree to that stake. And what that stake does is it helps the tree to grow up strong and straight. Because if the tree was all by itself, it would topple over. Well, the illustration here is that government is like that stake that you put in the ground. Because we are weak, because humanity, according to the Bible, is tainted by sin, we need some kind of stake to keep us from fully falling over and decaying into anarchy. We know that anarchy is bad. We know that the the heart is deceitful above all things. And when left to ourselves, we tend to decay as a people and as a society into 
vile, terrible sin. We see this in the book of Judges, right? So Judges is that great book that is the counter to anyone who says that anarchy is a good way to go about things. When people are left to themselves and they make their own decisions, it ends in terrible situations where there's death, where there's rape, where there's murder, where there's all types of terrible things taking place. So God has given us government as a good gift from God when it's run properly underneath God's authority. It's a good gift that essentially protects the tree from falling on itself. And they have particular responsibilities that they're in charge of. There's a particular line of authority that government has and particular lines of authority that they don't have. Now, I want to open up to, a, to um, not Assyria, to Isaiah chapter 10. This is a fascinating chapter, one that when we talk about the sovereignty of God, Isaiah chapter 10 is really a good chapter to go to. Um, in this chapter, God's, he's just got done rebuking Israel for their sin and their stubborn hearts, and he basically says that they have deprived the needy of justice, and they've, they've robbed the poor and their widows. And if you go through uh, all the prophets, very regularly, you see the prophets um, condemning Israel because they failed to live up to the standards of their law, to care for the most vulnerable among them, particularly the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the most vulnerable among them. That's one of the reasons in our church today that we speak so much about what abortion is doing, because abortion takes the life of the most vulnerable among us, those who are in the womb. And so as a church, we, we want to make sure we're avoiding the wrath of God and speaking up for the most vulnerable among us. That's why we speak so much about abortion at our church and then also on this podcast here. But when you look at what God does in Isaiah chapter 10, he brings punishment. And he brings the punishment by raising up another nation to come and bring war against Israel, the people of God. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So look at what God's doing. Assyria is a pagan nation who is evil. They're doing terrible, evil things. We can look at the annals of history to know the evilness of that Assyrian empire. But God raises them up and calls them the staff. He says, the staff in their hands is my fury. They are the rod of my anger. He raises up another nation who comes and enacts war on Israel, and that war is the judgment of God. Then, later on, when Assyria thinks that they've done it all on their own, and they get full of pride, God then condemns Assyria. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 13, By the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, says Assyria. And then what happens in Isaiah 10, 15? God then condemns and brings judgment on Assyria for thinking they overcame the people of God all on their own strength. Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? I will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors. Notice how God's totally in control. He raises up nations, and when that nation, Assyria, gets cocky and they start behaving in a way that they think they overcame the people of God on their own, what does he do? He sends a wasting sickness. Yes, that's right. Even epidemics are not out of God's control. He uses these things all through Scripture to accomplish his purposes. Now, what's the point here? What was the first point I was trying to make? Government is under God's authority and ultimately held accountable to God. The biblical worldview 
is that all authorities are put in place by God and will be under judgment to that one God. Just as Assyria ended up behaving in an ungodly way and was held accountable to God and went underneath judgment from the one true God because of their ungodliness, so are all authorities underneath the one true authority that is God. Here's what that means. When you look at a government and you're trying to understand, are they a good government or a bad government? All you need to do is ask the question, are they adhering to God's law? If they're adhering to God's law, if the laws they're enacting are godly, and we know they're godly because we can trace them down to the Bible, and we determine, are they just laws because they're tied to the scriptures, and we see what justice is from the scriptures. If governments are enacting just laws, and they're doing what governments are supposed to do, it is a good government that will not face the wrath of God. If we see them overstepping their bounds and behaving as God has not declared government should behave, they are bad government and will incur incur the wrath of God ultimately at some point. All right, point number two. Government is God's servant responsible for carrying the sword. Government is God's servant responsible for carrying the sword. Let's just keep going right through Romans 13. It says this, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, the language that is used in this passage when it talks about God being the servant or, or the government being the servant of God for our good, that language is the word deacon. It's the same word where we get our term deacon to serve somebody. Government is the deacon of the Lord. And what are they specifically doing? They're carrying the sword, being an avenger of God's wrath on evildoers. That makes total sense, right? I mean, think about that. I know that language is kind of outdated and funny, but really, what what is that saying? It's saying this. If you are a person who breaks the law, the law of God, God has an institution in place to bring wrath down on your head. And that institution is the government. Now, There are certain spheres of authority. We're going to get into this a little bit. The church, the where like for example, our church, where I'm an elder of a church, I'm a governing authority in our church. I do not carry the sword of God's wrath to bring down justice on the evildoer. That's not my assignment. That's not what I do. That's the government's assignment. They carry the sword of God's wrath. In the same way, the, other, the, the government does not carry particular responsibilities that I do as a leader of my church. What I'm trying to say here is they have a particular responsibility, government, and their responsibility is to carry the sword. Now, this has been broken down in a number of different ways. I'll, I'll break it down into two different swords, just historically, that have been uh, thought of. The internal sword and the external sword. So the internal sword is oftentimes called the sword of justice. And this is to oversee corporeal punishment. So God tells us as individuals not to seek revenge over those who do wrong, but to leave that to the Lord, right? We see that right from scripture. Do not seek revenge, but leave that to the Lord. Well, the way that God often, not always, but the way that God often enacts justice and gets revenge against those who do evil is through government. So government has the responsibility for punishing evildoers in accordance with the standard of God written in scripture. So if you break the law, you get punishment. 
If you do something worthy of the death penalty, it's the government that holds the keys to the death penalty. That's what they are there for. Secondly, they hold the external sword, and that is oftentimes called the sword of war. Again, Christians on the whole desire peace. We never seek out war. We are not a war-hungry people. In fact, from Isaiah chapter 2, that great chapter, Isaiah chapter 2, which out of a my worldview, I believe Isaiah chapter 2 is speaking of our day today when nations learn of Jesus and they begin to come into relationship with each other and the people learn of Jesus, there will be less desire for war. And we'll beat our swords into plowshares. As Christianity expands, we should expect less and less war in the world because more and more people are following the goodness and the love of our God. But in this world, as there is real evil and real sin and very bad governments, historically there has been what Augustine quoted as just wars. In our day and age, it would be very wise for everybody to have some working knowledge of this topic. Not every war that nations get into, that our own nation has been in, is a just war. Oftentimes, we find out later there were very unjust ideas that perpetrated the reason for war. You look back on World War II as what I would consider a just war. You have a tyrannical, evil ruler who was satanic, who literally was satanic. That would be a great podcast one day, by the way. Satan had a right-hand man who was deeply into the occult and, and all this kind of witchcraft. He was an evil ruler who was killing people for the sheer pleasure of it out of a pure, monstrous evil. And it is just for nations to rise up and to stand against that. That's one of the swords that God has given nations to hold the swords of war. When a sovereign nation needs to defend itself against an enemy attacking it, it's the government of that nation who carries that responsibility. So biblically, a strong national military is a good and important thing in this fallen world. That same military, however, if it's put to an ungodly purpose, is a bad thing and will bring on the justice of God. Now, ultimately, let's just remember this. Ultimately, the the sword ultimately belongs to the Lord. Right? He has delegated sword carrying in particular ways to government, but the ultimate sword rests with the Lord. So this is why, look, early on when we had the Black Lives Matter protests happening and when we had a number of new ideas that we saw coming through a number of those protests, one of the languages, one of the bits of language that we heard was this phrase, abolish the police. Do you remember that? In fact, in a number of places, it's, it's still being heard. In fact, a number of large uh, city centers, I'm thinking of places like Portland and Seattle, have seriously been taken into practice some kind of abolish the police. And what we've seen as a result, literally you can read the statistics on this, is that because of those changes to the police structure, violence has skyrocketed in those cities. Crime has gone way, way up, and they are coming to a reckoning of what happens when you remove government from their assigned responsibility. Abolishing the police is not a biblical idea. That's not what we're interested in. Of course we're interested in police reform. Always, all of our institutions should always be reforming. There's always things to work on and get better at, and if there's any kind of evil that's rooted into the systems, we need to get rid of it. However, Getting rid of government's ability to hold the sword is not a biblical idea. We would never want to abolish the police. Why? Because from a biblical worldview, evil is real. We know it's real, and we need those who are assigned by the Lord to carry the sword to bring about wrath on the evildoer. All right, principle number three. 
Government operates within a specific and limited sphere of influence. Oh, say it with me again. Ready for this? Government operates within a specific and limited sphere of influence. Okay? Limited sphere of influence. Can you hear the uh, my favorite word in that sentence? Let me say it again. And this I'm going to say it really, really, like with my the most amount of flair I can give. Ready? Government operates within a specific and limited sphere of influence. Okay, Romans 13, verses 5 to 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It says they are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What very thing? Well, what he had just said before, executing justice on evildoers. Government has a lane where they operate. They perform particular functions, and according to the Bible, they do not perform other functions. You give government what is owed to them. That's this passage. You give them taxes in order for them to do those functions, but you do not give to government what is not owed to them. And how do we know what is owed to them? We look at the particular functions that have been ordained for them to oversee. Now, What do I mean here? Christianity has usually thought about three separate spheres of government, okay? Three separate spheres of government. Now, when I use the term government, I'm talking bigger than just, you'll see what I mean. We talk about three spheres of government. The first one is the government of the state. The second one is the government of the church. And the third one is the government of the family. Each of those is their own sphere of authority. There's the government of the state given authority by God. They are under governors, meaning there is a greater governor over them. In the same way, there is the government of the church. I am a governor of our church. I'm an elder at our church, and I help govern and lead the church. And I have a particular set of responsibilities as a governor of the church. I'm an under governor. I am not the ultimate. It is God who dictates how I do that function. And when I break God's commands, I am no longer functioning as a good governor of the church. And finally, you have the government of the family, where I also am the head of my family. As the father and the husband of my house, I exercise headship, governance over my family, again, as an under-governor, God being the ultimate governing authority who I submit to. So, for example, when I discipline my children, what I say to them, I have them look me in the eye when they've disobeyed repeatedly, and I have them look at me and I say, children, what is your job? They'll look at me and they'll say with their sweet little puffy, teary eyes, My job is to listen and obey my mom and dad. And then I'll say, absolutely right. You listen and obey mom and dad. Why? Because I am their governing authority. They need to listen and obey me. And then what do I say next? I say, children, what's my job? And they'll look at me and they'll say, your job is to listen and obey Jesus Christ. And I say, absolutely. And I say, so long as I obey Jesus Christ and you obey me, everything will go well in this family. But if either of us breaks those links in that chain, then everything will fall apart. Notice both of us are under an authority. Now, here's the great problem. There's three 
spheres of family, three spheres of authority, excuse me, the government of the state has assigned responsibilities from God, the government of the church has assigned responsibilities of the church, and the government of the family has assigned responsibilities of the family. They should not be speaking into each other in a way that's authoritative and dictating how the other one should be with some exception. So let's walk through this. One of the most often places I see these spheres being broken in our modern day, and frankly just being accepted by modern Christians, is government overreach. The government reaching beyond their assigned responsibility and trying to step into the family and into the church and dictating how those things should be done. Let me give you two examples, one from China, one from our own country, America. Well, and if you're listening from America, then it's your own country. Where I am, my own country, America. So right now in, in China, for example, uh, right now in China, there is a state-run church. So the church is accepted so long as they're state-run, and the Chinese Communist Party is worshipped to a certain degree. Now, that is an overreach from the governing authorities. The government cannot tell the church how to operate. What they've done is they've made churches bow the knee to the government, and any church that does not abide by government's jurisdiction of how a church ought to operate is shut down or their building is torn down or their pastors are put in jail. That is government overreach. It's government in their sphere, what they're told and commanded to govern, stepping into the church's sphere and dictating what they do and how they ought to do it. That is wrong, and the Chinese government will eventually face the justice of God because of those overreaches. Now, in our own government, in America, we see this happening in any number of ways. The first story that I told you about, James Coates, of him in Canada being put in prison for holding a church service, I would say with quite clear uh, objective thinking on this, that is massive government overreach massive government overreach. The government does have a job to protect its citizens. Absolutely. They do have a job to carry the sword against those who do evil. The question here, obviously, is, is James Coates doing evil? And from a biblical worldview, we will have people who will say, absolutely, they look on what he's doing, and they're saying what he's doing is evil. How could he possibly do it? And the government is absolutely justified in putting him in jail. But if you take into all the verses in consideration, you take in all we know about COVID-19, I think that's an absolutely insane position to take. We know a lot about this disease right now. We know who it targets. We know exactly who it does not target and who is at most risk of death and really the most worst case scenario of COVID. It's senior citizens who are largely over 65%, over 70% in Illinois. I don't know exactly what it is in Alberta who have been vaccinated at this point. We know who it's targeting. We know exactly the numbers of what we can expect. We know what works and what doesn't work. We know the cost of not meeting at this point. We have seen depression, alcoholism, suicidal rates, all types of things go skyrocketing to the point that you can argue there is a great case to make, and I'm not going to make it right now, but at least you could have the conversation around was it worth it to shut it down because the amount of death that will be on the other side of the shutdown uh, for as long as it's been? Because for every day and week you keep 
society shut down in some degree, you are increasing the amount of deaths in other categories. And there is an actual numerical algorithm that people have put together, and they've been saying for a while, it's at least in comparison. The amount of people that will die because we've shut down from other things like depression, suicide, alcoholism, not going to the hospital for other real issues, is if not more, it's equal, close to equal, the amount of death that would have happened because of COVID not shutting things down. So all I'm saying is there is good reason for us to actually think through with a holistic thought, is it right to open church services? But here's the big point. Every local elder has the authority to make that decision for their church. And it's not the government who has the ability to tyrannically step out of their space of leading the government and to tell the church what they can and cannot do. Allow me to give you another example of this. Uh, when the government tries to step into homeschooling networks and tells family how they can and cannot educate their children, that's government overreach. And we see that happening. It's happened in other countries and it's happening in our own country where there are laws being suggested where government says what Christian parents can and cannot teach their children and goes against their own conscience. Now, again, from a Christian worldview, this is against the Christian teaching. Christians understand sphere sovereignty, and the government has one role, the family has one role, the church has a role, and we operate in that role. And I will say this, it is the church's responsibility historically to keep the government in check. Historically, when government overreaches, when they say and they try to step out of their bounds and govern in spheres where they do not have governing authority from God, it is the church who needs to raise their hand and yell and say, whoa, 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 you are out of line. You have, you have stepped beyond the role God's given you. Now, here's where I'm at. Let me, let me close this segment today by just kind of giving you some thoughts to, to clear up. My heart was to lay some principles for you to think more holistically about these issues. I don't want to tell you exactly what you should think about churches reopening or whether James Coates should open his church or not. That's not the aim of this show. My aim is more to give you principles holistically so you're not just cherry-picking one verse and then making a false biblical assertion that you think should be true because you heard someone say it. I want you to take the whole counsel of God. Now, obviously, we didn't cover all the scriptures we could today. There's much more to this conversation. We didn't even get to the necessity for churches to continue to gather together. Let me read you two verses from that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just before Paul sets up the communion meal, it says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. The church must come together. The assembly is what we do. Online service is not the assembled church. Those are two different things. We're grateful for online services. I'm grateful that that's a tool that's been able to care for a number of our senior citizens, a number of those who have particular health risks who have not been able to come to the assembly, but it is not a replacement for the church. And churches need to make decisions at some point to continue to gather. 
there will always be some kind of safety net, some kind of reason for us not to meet, something that the government is saying, look, it would be more advisable for you not to do it the way you feel that you should do it. But the church needs to ultimately have their consciences shaped by the standard of God's word, which speaks a lot into these situations. So, my heart, I want you to think more biblically about these things. I want you to know what's at stake. And also, I want you to be able to see arguments that people are making. When you're online and you're seeing comments and you're seeing people have insight into this, take into account all of Romans 13 and speak newness into the conversation. Be an ambassador for Christ. Speak with new counsel from the Word of God that others haven't thought of. If you hear people dissing on James Coates and they're only cherry-picking one verse, bring more verses into the conversation. Be an educator of others. That is the role we have. We must continue speaking into society. Otherwise, we're in a whole lot of trouble. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this has equipped you to think about this more rightly. As always, thank you for joining. Share this content. Share it far and wide. Get this to others. Give me a like on the podcast if you get a chance or on our Facebook page. And Lord willing, I'll see you next week.